Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Thank you for your patience. I'm sorry for the delay. Um, my name is Peter Florence. I'm the festival director, and it has been my very great um, delight and, and privilege for some 16 years to program this lecture, which is the keynote lecture in the festival, the lecture which we uh, devote to Raymond Williams, who is in many ways a guiding spirit of this festival. Uh, he was my tutor at Jesus College, Cambridge, in um, the 1980s and was instrumental in encouraging us to set this festival up. And over the last 16 years, many of the lectures that have been delivered in his name here have addressed various aspects of his thought, whether about theatre and criticism from Arnold Westwood and David Hare, or about national identity from Toni Morrison and Amos Oz, or about culture and society. And you may have heard Eric Hobsbawm or Germaine Greer or Tom Paulin um, talking very eloquently about all those ideas. The lecture this year, Loose Tongues, is going to be given by Hanif Qureshi. Hanif, as I'm sure you know, is uh, a master of almost every writing art. He has had fantastic success with novels, with short stories, for both small and large screen. You will know The Buddha of Suburbia, you will know My Beautiful Laundrette, you will know Gabriel's Gift, you will know The Body. You are about, I think, very soon to see uh, the recent hit of the Cannes Film Festival last week, his collaboration with Roger Michel, The Mother. Um, for my part, um, as someone who reads books all the time and who watches an inordinate amount of television and film, um, I can think of no one whose work I am more eager uh, to see and read and whose work has given me so much pleasure. I think and have said this often before, so please forgive me if you've heard it before, but if you haven't, please take it to heart. The thing that makes his work so extraordinary is that he doesn't write about characters, all the, all the people in his novels, in his short stories, in his films seem to me to be real people. Um, I think he's the most remarkable writer of my British age, and I'm delighted that he's going to be giving this lecture. He's going to talk for 20, 25 minutes on the theme that I think roughly, if you're going to al ally it to Raymond Williams, addresses the theme of culture and society, and also ad addresses the theme of national identity. Um, he's then going to take questions for which I'll hop back onto the stage and try and um, select uh, questions as they come from the floor. If you have a question, please put up your hand. We'll have the lights up. There are roving mics. We'll bring them to you. If they work best if you hold them about four inches away from your face, directly, horizontally in front. Um, thank you. And please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Hanif Qureshi. Good evening. Thank you for coming to this. Um, I'd like to dedicate this lecture to my friend and publisher, Matthew Evans, um, one of the great post-war publishers. If someone would wake him up gently at the end of the lecture, we can have a drink. 
This is called Loose Tongues. That exemplary dissident, Oscar Wilde, whose punishment failed to erase his words, but taught us something about where a loose tongue might get you, wrote, when people talk to us about others, they are usually dull. When they talk to us about themselves, they are nearly always interesting. This essay concerns something we are and take for granted, the fact we are speaking animals, full of words which have a profound effect on others, words that are sometimes welcomed and sometimes not. I want to say something about words which seem possible and others that seem impossible. It's no coincidence that the political and social systems which have dominated our era, communism, global capitalism, fascism, imperialism, and the nuclear family, are marked by a notable factor. There are circumstances in which they don't want people talking about their lives. Tyrants are involved with silence as a form of control. Who says what to whom and about what is of compelling interest to authorities, to dictators, fathers, teachers, and officials of whichever type. As Milan Kundra pointed out in his great novel, The Joke, there are times when the need to be funny is so subversive that it can land you in jail. Isaac Babel, who was murdered in prison and called a book, The World Seen Through an Individual, was himself not unaware of the ironies here. And he said, quote, whenever an educated person is arrested in the Soviet Union and finds himself in a prison cell, he's given a pencil and paper and told, write. What his interrogators wanted were words, but of course the meaning of corrupt is to falsify, to adulterate or debase, in this case the language, that which links us to others. In his short fiction, In the Penal Colony, Kafka describes an ingenious machine for torturing to death a man condemned for disobedience. The device is equipped with ink jets which inscribe the name of the crime on the victim's body, even as he bleeds to death. Quote, this condemned man, for instance, the officer indicated the man, will have written on his body, honor thy superiors. The whole process of writing as killing takes 12 hours. This calligraphy, calligraphy of colonialism might be called being killed by description, as the body is ripped to shreds by those who hold the pen. There is no question here of the victim having his own pen. He doesn't speak. His version of events, his story, will not be considered. Even his own body carries the inscription of the other. Collective or shared stories, linked by implicit agreement about how the future should be, or about the sort of people who are preferred, can also be called ideologies, traditions, beliefs, way of, ways of life, or forms of power. After they've been told for a while, stories can turn into politics, into our institutions, and it is important that they seem to be just the way things are and the way they have to go on being. It is always illuminating, though, to think of those groups and individuals who are denied the privilege of speaking and being listened to, whether they be immigrants, asylum seekers, women, the mad, children, the elderly, or workers in the third world. It is where the words end or can't go that abuse takes place, whether it's racial harassment, bullying, neglect, or sexual violence. Silence, then, like darkness, carries something important about who the authorities want others to be, something important about the nature of authority itself and the way it wants to dehumanize others in the silence. Of course, different systems use different methods to ensure silence, 
from the cutting off of tongues to the burning of books or the use of sexual morality, as well as covert prohibition, like ignoring people, all are different ways of ensuring a dictatorship of voices or of maintaining a single voice. If one person tells another who they really are while denying them the right to self-description, certain kinds of self-doubt or inner disintegration will follow. People can be formed and also deranged by the stories that others tell about them. When Jean Genet was told he was a thief, it was an idea it took him most of his life to escape. The necessity of a certain interpretation of reality and the imperative that this idea be maintained couldn't be clearer than in families. Children are soon made aware of the force of a particular description and of its authority. While most parents are aware that children develop when they are listened to, they don't always want to hear them. On their side, of course, children are fascinated by language, especially when they discover that there are words which make the adults crazy or frightened, which make the adults want to slap them or shut them up. Children can become compelled by any discourse which provokes terror in adults. Therefore, children learn about the language, learn about the language community, by discovering what cannot or should not be said. They learn about prohibition and limits, about punishment, about hiding and secrets, and about privacy. When they discover what cannot be said, they have to learn to lie or conceal their words, often from themselves. If they're lucky, they become creative and they use metaphor. If they're unlucky, they go mad. Depression, for instance, might be called a kind of slowness. Depression could be seen as a subversive refusal to move at the speed of other people, as a rejection of a banal, alienating, consumerist world in favor of an authentic inner puzzlement. But more commonly, without such an idealization, depression is a slowness which usually takes place in silence, beyond or outside language or symbolization. The depressed, therefore, do not believe in language as the carrier of meaning. The dead can't make friends. The depressed person, self-silenced, you might say, feels far removed from the source of her words, which may well multiply on their own and can seem to circulate wildly and without meaning, like birds trapped in an empty room. The deliberately silent are at least making a point to themselves when they suppress or break up their own stories. The involuntarily silent, on the other hand, might feel as though they've had their words fruitlessly stolen from them. But this enforced silence on behalf of the powerful is not for nothing. The mythologizing of those not heard is the opportunity for difficult or busy work. The silent other has to be called, for instance, a stranger, a foreigner, an immigrant, or an asylum seeker. She might be an exile, an interloper, the one who does not fit or belong, the one who is not at home, the one whose words do not count. This range of descriptions at least makes it clear that we can never stop wondering about our own alien, awkward, or foreign parts, the elements which cannot speak except through the use of others. Racism might at least teach us that we are always strange or other or unwelcome to ourselves, at least, particularly when it comes to our need. We might even be aware that there is an odd but intriguing silent reversal here. The sort of capitalism we have has always depended on colonialism and has always required both labor in the third world and labor from the third world, the immigrant in other words. And yet our own need has only ever been represented in terms of their need as their dependence on us. 
This is frequently manifested as an image of desperate people climbing over barbed wire fences, eager to come over here and strip us of all we have. The subject chosen to be strange has an important place. He or she has to be constantly kept in mind, worked over and worked on. It is a passion, this attitude to the threatening foreigner, the outsider, the one who doesn't know our language. Someone has to be kept in their place in order that the other can exist in a particular relation to them, so that hatred can flourish. I call this a passion rather than an opinion because these fictions have to be constantly reiterated. They can't be stated once and for all, since the victim seems always about to escape his description. Unless he's constantly buried and reburied beneath a deluge of words, and of course the actions which words entail, he might turn into someone just like us. If a plausible version of the 20th century can be told in terms of silence and its uses, there is reason for optimism too. That period was also about people insisting on their own words and histories, speaking for themselves. The 1970s, as I recall, were about the formerly colonized, gays, women, the mad, children, putting their side of the story, telling it in their own words and being heard. As a result, in some places, there were significant social advances. It's been said that when Pinochet was arrested in Britain, things changed a little in Chile. The dictator wasn't sacrosanct. People began to speak. His mystique was penetrated at last. Clearly, though, this description I've just given is very simple. There is an absence here. I've implied that on one side, the words are there, ready and waiting to go, while on the other, they are unwelcome or prohibited, that the only problem with the words is that the authorities don't want to hear them. However, at the center of this is something else I want to talk about, the person who doesn't want to hear their own words. This is the person who owns them, who has made them inside his or her own body, but both does and does not have access to them, who is prisoner, prison, and the law. Real dictators in the world are a picture, too, of dictators within individuals, of certain kinds of minds. If we wanted to create an authoritarian system which was complete, in which there were no loose tongues, or within an individual no significant inner life, it would have to be one in which dreams were strictly supervised. Even in prison, under the strictest supervision and observation, a human being can at least dream. Here he might at least represent or symbolize that which cannot or must not be said. But how would these dreams be understood? Who would be there to receive them? In 1906, an English surgeon, talking to Ernest Jones, mentioned with some astonishment a strange doctor in Vienna, quote, who actually listened with attention to every word his patients said to him. What Freud realized was that because there are forms of speaking which are radically dangerous and unsettling, which change lives and societies, people don't want to know what these words are. But he adds, in another sense, they do really want to know because they are made aware by their suffering of a lack. They at least know that they will not be complete without certain forms of self-knowledge, that this will be liberating, even though the consequences of any liberation could also be catastrophic. Human beings leak the truth of their desire, whether they like it or not. In dreams, fantasies and drunkenness, in their jokes and mistakes, as well as in delirium, religious ecstasy, in babble, and in saying the opposite of what they mean. It takes a rationalist, then, to see that rationalism can only fail, that what we need is more, not less, madness in our speaking.
Otherwise, our bodies take up the cause on our behalf, and bodies can speak in weird ways, through hysteria, for instance, in Freud's day, the modern equivalent of which might be addiction, anorexia, racism, or various phobias. Freud invented a new method of speaking, which involved two people going into a room together. One person would speak and the other would listen, trying to see in the gaps, resistances and repetitions, what else, in the guise of the obvious, was being said. He would then give these words, translated into other words, back to the speaker. Great individualists, though they might be, both Wilde and Socrates, like Freud, used dialogue as their preferred form. Indeed, in another essay, Oscar Wilde replaces the Socratic imperative, know yourself, with be yourself, which might become, in this version of being, that of the language community, speak yourself. The therapeutic couple is one method of seeing who you are by speaking, and it is an original and great invention. But there will be something odd, to say the least, about a society in which everyone was in therapy. Not that there isn't something already odd in the idea that only the wealthy can buy mental health. Fortunately, there has always been another place where the speaking of the darkest and most dangerous things has always gone on, which we might call a form of lay therapy. We know that this mode of speaking is useful because of the amount of prohibition it has incurred. It is sometimes called conversation, or the theater, or poetry, or dance, or the novel. What is called creativity or culture might remind us of Freud's method because many artists have talked about the ways in which words have the, the knack of speaking themselves. The writer is only there to catch them, organize them, and write them down. Even the prophet Muhammad, around whose name silence is usually required, was visited by an angel who gave him the law. Muhammad didn't make up those rules himself. They were spoken through him, but came from elsewhere. Another instance of the death of the author, or the author at one side to himself, the secretary or midwife to himself, you might say, making a divine law that no human being can modify or speak back to. A culture is a midwife to images and symbolizations, a place where people speak to one another, where words matter, and because they're in the public domain, can be understood or used in a number of ways. It is also where one is forbidden to speak about certain things. It has, therefore, to be a place where the question of speaking and punishment is spoken about. The collective can have a conversation because artists like to loiter near the heat of the law, where the action is. If artists are considered to be on the edge, they are on the edge of the rules and close to punishment and, like Beckett, not far from silence, where speaking has to be almost impossible if it is to be of any value. What Freud added, and the Surrealists knew, along with the other artists who have formed our consciousness, Bunuel, Bergman, Joyce, Picasso, Wolf, Stravinsky, Pinter, was that if the unconscious was to be represented, there had to be new forms for it. These artists knew that conventional talk and the conventional art which accompanied it had been turned into chatter. They knew that this worked as a block or filter to forms of knowledge which were essential if we were not to be silent or if we were not to kill one another for reasons we couldn't understand. Therefore, if modern art and much of what has followed it has been the attempt to say the unsayable, some of these forms can only be ugly and disturbing. These forms have to be banned, dismissed, and discouraged, partly because, like most forms of fantasy, they are subject to shame, itself a form of censorship. 
To speak at all is to be aware of censorship. The first thing young writers come up against when they uncap, uh, uncap their pen is a block in the form of a prohibition. Young writers may well find their mother's face floating into view, along with several good reasons why not continuing is a good idea. Freud, a prodigious writer himself, put it like this, quote, as soon as writing, which entails making a liquid flow out of a tube onto a piece of white paper, assumes the significance of a copulation, it will be stopped, end quote. This, you might say, is the imprimatur of good speaking, that there is a resistance which guarantees the quality of the utterance. There are, then, at least two voices called up here, the voice which needs to speak and the voice or several voices which refuse, which say these words are so exciting and forbidden that they must be worthless. This is what makes any attempt at creativity a useful struggle. What makes it worthwhile is a difficulty, the possibility of a block, 20th century art has been fascinated by dreams and nightmares, by violence and sexuality, so much so that it might be termed an art of terrible fantasy. One begins to see splits, deep conflicts, terrors, hatreds, and a lot of death in these art nightmares. These elements can be put together, somehow fused in a work of art, but they are not always reconcilable. However, irreconcilable parts may find a voice in some form of personal expression, which partly is why modern art has been so painful and difficult to look at, even now, and why any new art to be of value has to shock us. This is because it breaks the silence we didn't even know we were observing. At least art brings us beauty as compensation for its message, but it is not in the end the favor it might be, because it can be an awful beauty, just as to tell the truth about sexuality might not be to talk about how good or hygienic it is for us, but to speak about how bad or painful it is for us. Speaking, listening, being known and knowing others. We might say that at least, if everyone doesn't get much of a turn, we live in a representative democracy. This at least separates us from various fundamentalisms. We can vote. We believe we have politicians who can speak for us. Yet one of the reasons we hate politicians is that we suspect they are speaking on their own behalf while purporting to speak on ours. Our words, being handed on by our representatives, are not getting through, and they never will. Our speaking makes not a jot of difference. One way of looking at globalization, we might say, is to say that it is a version of certain Orwellian authorities saying the same thing over and over, the attempt being to keep new words or any human doubt, need, or creativity out of the system. Surely, then, if politicians cannot cannot possibly do the trick. Artists might do it. Speaking from themselves and sensibly refusing to do advertising, they do nonetheless speak for some of us, and they take the punishment on our behalf too. In the absence of other convincing figures, like priests or leaders, it is tempting to idealize artists and the culture they make. Nevertheless, in the end, there is no substitute for the value of one's own words, of one's story, and the form one has found for it. Sartre, in his autobiography, Words, says, when I began writing, I began my birth over again. There is something about one's sentences being one's own, however impoverished and inadequate they might feel, which is significant, which makes them redemptive. 
If you wanted to tell someone you loved them, you usually wouldn't get someone else to do it for you. If there are to be a profusion or multiculturalism of voices, particularly from the mar margins of expression, then the possibility of dispute and disagreement is increased. The virtue and risk of real multiculturalism is that we could find that our values are ultimately irreconcilable with those of others. From that point of view, everything just gets worse. There is more internal and social noise and confusion and more questions about how things get decided and by whom. If the idea of truth itself is questioned, the nature of the law itself is altered. It can seem conditional, for instance, pragmatic rather than divine, or at least subject to human modification or intervention, if not control. There are always good reasons not to speak, therefore, to bite our own tongues, as many dissidents, artists, and children will testify. It will offend, it's dangerous, hurtful, frightening, morally bad. Others will suffer, or they will not hear us. But the good thing about words, sentences, and stories is that their final effect is incalculable. Unlike violence, for instance, which is an unmistakable message, talking is a free form, a kind of experiment. It is not a description of an inner state, but an act, a kind of performance. It is an actor improvising, which is dangerous and unpredictable, rather than one saying lines which have already been scripted. The thought is in the mouth, as Tristan Zara puts it. It is not that we, we require better answers, but that we need better questions. All speaking is a demand, at first for a reply, proving the existence of communication, but ultimately for an answer, for more words, for love, in other words. You can never know what your words might turn out to mean for yourself or for someone else, or what the world they make will be like. Anything could happen. The problem with silence is that we know exactly what it will be like. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Hanif. Um, can we take questions from the floor, please? Starting with the gentleman over here. Can we get the mic over to this side? And could everybody, when you're asking questions, please try and keep it quite brief? At least in America today, there's a, move, uh, a mood of uh, political correctness. And I think that fits into your uh, monologue in the sense that words under this uh, guise of political correctness are being chosen for the individual speaker instead of letting him, s as Byron, as you quoted Byron, speak thyself. We have to speak under parameters which make speech not free. Can you comment on the whole idea of political correctness? Um, well, I guess political correctness, as, I, uh, as you suggest, is, a, is, a, is another form of, of constraint. Um, on the other hand, there are certain things you don't want to hear people saying, and political correctness does work for some people at certain times, particularly being an Asian kid myself. I remember in school being insulted, particularly by the teachers, and called a packet. You might call that free speech. On the other hand, you might, f you might feel it's something you, you, you would want less of. Um, 
I guess what I'm talking about is the idea that people can say anything, but if, if you, uh, and they should say anything. The problem with saying anything is that you have to take the consequences of that. Um, and it seems to me better on the whole that people do speak, but there are consequences and people's lives change as a result of their speaking, I think, which is something I'm trying to say, that in a sense, if you carry on talking, uh, particularly the, the, those moments in the kitchen with your wife when you know you have to shut up, um, it can be catastrophic. <laughs> but on the other hand, there are some cat catastrophes which are, which are worth making, I suppose, um, which certainly uh, uh, make life uh, uh, more lively, at least, let's say. Anybody else? Yeah, gentleman over here, please. Hello. Uh, you mentioned um, Orwell in the course of your uh, talk. I didn't, actually. I could have done. <laughs> I, didn't <laughs> I didn't mention Orwell at all, actually. Go on, then. I think you may, may Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. Well. Somebody was paying attention. <laughs> I mean, to what extent do you think um, the use of political language by the Labour government, uh, particularly in its attempts to justify the war against Iraq, could be described as Orwellian, in the sense that we had fabricated um, information about uranium exports to Iraq, we had plagiarized PhD theses. Um, do you think that the extent to which this has entered into political uh, discourse has actually pushed on the kind of norms of mendaciousness in political life in the UK? Yeah, it seems to me that what's interesting about the, the war, about uh, Iraq and, 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 and the discourse that surrounded it, was that the audience is so sophisticated that you just know you're being lied to the whole time. You know that already, and presumably they know that you know that, uh, that, that, that they're lying. That the whole thing is a fiasco. There is no, there is no moment of, uh, uh, of truth or anything that you can believe in the whole thing. Um, and, and it's a farce, and you wonder all the time where you might go to for, for a moment of truth, somebody speaking, you know, saying something that actually that may have some meaning. And I think, I think you're right. What you imply is that partly because of the Labour government, not only because of the Labour government, of course, um, the whole political discourse is so corrupt and worthless it's hardly worth uh, engaging with in any, in any other way. But where else would you go? Well, I guess there's culture, and sometimes in culture... Uh, there are truths spoken, but mostly it seems to me that in conversation. What was interesting about the Iraq war was that the, 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 the public, the uh, British public and in Europe, spoke a great deal about the war, but no government, certainly the British government, took no notice whatsoever. Uh, but at least, I guess, the, uh, the conversation was, was kept going. And to be honest, the outcome is of, of, of that war is certainly not clear, actually, and what will finally, the, the way the ships will finally fall, it will take a long time for anyone to see, actually. Um, but the fact is that people didn't stop talking. People are still talking about it. They're still worrying about it. You know, where are the weapons of mass destruction? Are they in Iraq or are, or are they, you know, concealed in the underpants of George Bush? Nobody knows. <laughs> but people will continue to, to ask those questions. And, and it, it's, that's what, what actually I admire, which is the insistence on people to carry on speaking about this, to carry on talking about this, to not to give up. 
uh, and to suggest that there may be a way of talking about things that actually is uh, uh, authentic, I guess, which, are, which, are, which is people continuing to ask questions about, about this stuff and to not settle for the rubbish that we're told. The public discourse is now more or less completely worthless uh, and the Labour government has, uh, has done a great deal, to, uh, it seems to me, to, to, to degrade it. Question from a gentleman over here. Um, this is um, a question about yourself in a way. Uh, I know some of your work from television mainly, and I just wonder what your uh, first language was. Was it English, or are you working through what is essentially a second language for you? I speak as someone who speaks both Welsh and English, <laughs> raised in an English household, but having studied Welsh, and I broadcast in Welsh, and. I do a lot of in both languages, but I'm never quite sure which language I am best at in expressing what I really want to get across. Well, I was brought up in South London, <laughs> in a place called Bromley. Um, so y you could say that English was my f a kind of English was my first language. <laughs> um, but of course, my father uh, was from India and would speak with his family in, in Punjabi or in Urdu or whatever. And I, and I have to admit that I spent a good deal of my childhood surrounded by people who were talking happily uh, to one another in languages which my father refused to teach me. Um, and um, whenever I go to India or to Pakistan, I'm always in deeply embarrassed by the fact, as, my, as one of my uncles once said to me rather cruelly, he said, the thing about you, Hanif, is you are English. And he said this with a terrible sadness, as if <laughs> somehow, you know, the family strain was, was, was dying out. So um, I always felt very excluded. And, and actually, I went, when I go into my corner shop and they're speaking in Punjabi, um, I always want to say, you know, I don't really understand what you're saying, but I, I recognize some of these words. Uh, and I felt rather excluded. So English is, well, I have to do, you know, I have to do my best with it. Um, <laughs> and you struggle with it and, and try and speak. Um, so I guess you could say it is my first language, yes. <laughs> uh, we've got time for two more questions. Uh, question, uh, one from the gentleman in what looks to be a sort of reddish jacket and then one from the lady a uh, couple of rows in front of him. While it's, while it's getting there, I'll ask you the sort of supplementary question. Because I, I read a fantastic quote once where somebody had said, you feel like an Asian John Mortimer, and you had responded by saying that you thought that was a huge compliment. <laughs> do, do you uh, acknowledge any Asian literary influence? Because it seems to me that you are profoundly uh, British in your literary cultural tradition. Um, yeah, no, I regret that I'm not more Indian than I actually am, actually. Uh, but I may be more Indian than, than I think. <laughs> <laughs> Having had an Indian family uh, on, my, uh, on my father's side, I'm sure there's lots of Indian stuff in there that, that I don't know is there, to be honest. It's interesting how, the f uh, as it were, families speak through the generations in all sorts of ways that you're not aware of, actually. Um, 
An Indian John Mortimer would be an odd thing, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, somebody over there had a question. Yes. Um, on the issue of daring to speak and being near the edge of punishment, which is I understood to be one of the things you were trying to say, is interesting you didn't mention anything about the internet, which is a medium now in which you can dare to speak and actually not be punished. I just wonder if you had any reflections on that. Well, that's terrific. What I'm, what, what I'm interested in is, is speaking that is near punishment, as it were. Speaking, I, I teach a lot of young writers, and, and, and the writers, it's when the writers are terrified, when they're about to speak, they know they're about to say something, actually, and they go, oh, people wouldn't be interested in that, or they'd really be bored by that. And at that moment, you want to say, go on, go on, because it's at that moment when they can't speak that they actually have something very exciting to speak. So the internet may be a good place for disseminate, disseminating what it is you've already thought or said and reaching other people, which is, seems to me to be important. What I'm talking about is the moments when you can't speak, when there is internal prohibition and when there's terror, when there's what people call writer's block or, 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 or inhibition, let's say, in speaking. Uh, and I work with young writers and I encourage them to do something called, re called free writing, which is when they sit down and write any old, in quotes, rubbish, and it's usually the rubbish. Uh, and, I, uh, and I encourage them, of course, to write as badly as they can. And when they write badly and then when they write rubbish, the writing is usually much higher quality when they're trying to write well. And I guess what I'm trying to do is to, is to enable people to capture the stuff that, 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 that you know, people put on their best clothes when they're writing, to capture the, capture the stuff that they wouldn't normally um, be able to say. And then they can disseminate it through the internet or whatever, or whatever means there are possible uh, to reach other people. Because I think that all... My father wrote novels which were not published, and we lived in a house where this man was trying to speak uh, but couldn't speak. And it was very strange and very moving. Because he could carry on writing these books and send them to a publisher, and then they'd come back. And then he'd say, well, I'm starting another one. He said, I've got six books in mind, he'd say. This is, my, this is my fourth book. And I've been reading his books recently, and he carried on writing these books, but nobody ever read them. I'm reading them now, and I could see that he was trying to speak. And it was very moving and very strange to find this man who, in a sense, was mad because he only spoke to himself. Uh, and it really puzzled me a lot. Um, the desire to speak, what it is you say to other people, uh, and how it changes you, and it, how it may, may change them, and the environment in which you live. Recently, I, I, I wrote a film called The Mother, which uh, Peter referred to that was shown in Cannes, which is about a woman who falls in love with her daughter's lover. And when she begins to speak in the family or make a demand, and when she refuses just to be a granny, there's a revolution in the family. All the bits of the family around her then change. Her speaking which is mostly sexual through her body, but then becomes, you know, linguistic. Um, or alters everything, makes a revolution. And I'm fascinated by how, you know, small uh, linguistic gestures can, can change a whole family, for instance. A question from a couple of rows in front. Hi. Um, I'm uh, involved in um, trying to give um, the um, Arab community in Britain a voice of their own, which they haven't had so far, and near the silence you describe. Um, I wonder whether you see yourself, your own works, as falling within the context of an Asian Brit, or you just see it as a standalone, and also whether you feel that the Asian community in Britain has got its own voice, generally. Um, 
Yes, well, I wouldn't want to speak about communities having a voice because in a way that implies that other people speak for you. What I'm interested in is people speaking for themselves. You know, there's always somebody who stands up and purports to speak for you. What I'm interested in is the people who don't speak, who can't speak, who want others to speak for them. And those people should be speaking for themselves, you might say. I think we idealise artists and we idealise politicians and we idealise fathers and families who do all the speaking, or me standing here doing all the speaking, for instance. What I'm interested in is people being able to find their own words for themselves. Um, I guess I began to write in the suburbs uh, partly as a result of racism. People would, you know, would call you a packy and they'd go, where are you from? And it would be, uh, you know, it would, there would be a, a kind of inner disintegration. And so the idea then of sitting down to write, to tell your story, to work out who you were, to present your version, seemed to me to be very important, and it's, I guess it saved my life, and I've been writing ever since, in a way, to give my version. You know, like when, when your kids have an argument, they always put their hands up and go, but, you know, so and so, you know, they want to put their side of the story, and that seems to me to be very important. I wouldn't call myself a representative, and I, wouldn't, I, and I, and I really don't like the word community, but I think in those communities, if we're going to use those words, we have to facilitate, as you say, ways in which people can be heard and can speak. Uh, it seems to me that if you want to look in a society to, to the most interesting and to the most complicated uh, and the most subversive element is to look towards those people who don't speak, who aren't here today, who can't be heard, who, uh, and, and listen to their words and enable them to speak. But there's another form of speaking which I was talking about that seems also important, is the way in which one speaks to oneself. You know, the language one uses to speak to, one, to oneself, the way one understands oneself. And that seems to be to be much harder, actually. Sometimes I think when I'm lying in bed listening to myself, I feel as if I'm listening to recordings of other people's voices, my father, my mother, you know, the whole lot of one's family, that somehow I often wonder, is there any, anything there at all? And you try and, you know, tr figure out which bit is you and which bit is other people. Uh, and I guess that's why I try and write, to try and figure out, you know, which voice is which, or to give different voices and different uh, individuals within me a, a place in the drama, which is called a novel, which is where people argue and speak. If this makes any sense at all to you, I'll be <laughs> I'm mystified. Helly, okay, thank you.